Welcome to another episode of Compressed FM, a podcast all about web development and design with a little bit of zest. In this episode, we're going to talk about Amy's process in building a CICD, DevOps, and other buzzwords pipeline. Hello, my name is Amy Dutton, and I am the Director of Design at Zeal. What's up, everyone? My name is James Quick, and I am a full-time technical content creator. Web development and design, who would have guessed? Well, we can do them both, even add a little zest. So turn up the volume, get ready for the best. Let's get it started in this episode of Compress. Today, we're joined by three fabulous sponsors. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs. Zeal is a software consultancy, and they are hiring. And Dato CMS is a performant headless CMS. More from each of these later in the show. James, what have you been up to? It's funny. I was like, I didn't write notes for this and you had notes. So I was going to be like, it's Emma's last day of preschool. And I was like, that's not my child. <laughs> um, I I think it was right at, like after we recorded the previous episode. I can't remember what it was. Oh, we were maybe going to record an episode on Tuesday. And instead, I think you had something going on. And then I started to build a new mailbox. So it's supposed to be like a modern looking mailbox. So I've been working on like the wooden frame. And maybe after we get done recording now, I'm going to start to try to dig out my existing one, which I mean, there's like a concrete block in there somewhere Mm -hmm. that I have to, I don't know how hard that's going to be or not. And then in theory, I'm going to lay a new concrete slab thing to put my anchors in for my posts and hang the new mailbox. This is, you can tell I've got a little bit of uncertainty, but that's the goal. (laughs) So I've been working on that. That's like my most recent side handyman DIY project. We replaced our mailbox at our last house right before we moved. And it was a little harder to dig it out than I would have anticipated. <laughs> and I did absolutely none of that job. None of the work. <laughs> none of the work. Henry did all of it. But mailboxes are like surprisingly expensive. Like the actual mailbox themselves or like including yeah. the post and everything? or what? I don't know. But I was just remember being surprised how much they cost. And like we were moving. And so it was like, do we really have to spend that money? Mm-hmm. <laughs> For something that we're For not going to ever use. Benefit. Yeah. yeah. But it's like, and all the pictures, it looks so much nicer than the old yeah. one that we had. In our Fair. neighborhood now, though, everybody has the exact same mailbox. Like, you're required to have this mailbox, and it's... Oh, no. Where's your like, personality? Well, some people have tried <laughs> to put, like, wrappers and things around them. But yeah. it's, like, really bad if you get a couple of teenagers that come by and, you know, whack them or hit them or car hits them. Because they're expensive. These are, like, mm. super expensive to replace. They have, like rot iron leaves on them and mm-hmm. anyway, fancy it's stuff it's dumb is what it ours is. now is a, like a rot i don't even know what rot means in this but rot iron base and it's like a little bit intricate but it just looks super old and outdated so this will be like a mm-hmm. full wooden modern. one that will yeah we've got a, i don't know if you've That's seen cool. the front of our house but it's mid-century modern so it should like match up i did see it it looked very cool i don't remember where i saw it i think it. did i send you the video I don't know how i saw it or are you just talking us? No, you d- I didn't see anything. Okay. Uh, I think Good to know. I think I saw it on Insta. Insta. But okay. you got deleted off of Instagram. I don't know yeah, how. Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. We just had I'll send you the video of our landscaping that is done. Now the house looks like so, I mean it looks amazing, especially in comparison to what it looked like when we bought it. So we're super excited about that too. Very cool. So what have you been up to? Well, you kind of gave my news <laughs> <laughs> away. But today was Emma's last day of preschool, so I have no more children in preschool, which no more babies. But that's really, it's like sad, but also like 
we've made it. We've arrived. <laughs> I've waited <laughs> eight years for this day. Yeah. So um, it'll be nice, especially in the fall when they're all three going off to school in, in public school and we don't have to pay for. <laughs> oh, preschool. so you're going to mm-hmm. save money too. Nice. Yeah, a little bit. Nice. Well, I do have a rant for today. I've actually Uh-oh. been racking up rants. <laughs> but this one is kind of interesting. So today's rant was a conversation that Henry and I have been having because he recently started a new job. But we've just been talking about like work-life balance and kind of where we've landed. I mean, I, in general, probably work more than I should just because my job is also my hobby. Mm-hmm. But we were just talking about with, work-life balance, there's really not, I don't feel like really a true balance. It's not like I spend eight hours over here, eight hours over here. Like that doesn't really exist. And it really just depends on seasons. And so what I would argue for is a better term is work-life priority. Like where do your priorities lie when certain things happen? If my kids have something, if they get sick, is my priority with them and taking care of them? Or is it actually doing a task that I have for work? And What does all that look like versus equal amounts of time in different places? Because I don't think that really exists. I think it's all fluid. Interesting. I like that, actually. And I'm a big advocate of work-life balance. And I have a similar thing where like, work-life balancing is great, but also what we enjoy is similar or at least related to the field Mm -hmm. that we're actually in. Like We record podcasts after hours and on weekends and stuff, and that's because we really enjoy it. But it's also about stuff that we talk about and do on a daily basis at our job. So it's just stuff that we enjoy. So it is a little bit of a misnomer in that sense, but I think that's having hobbies are good anyway, uh, which mm-hmm. I think you and I both have outside hobbies completely unrelated to tech, which is good. So it's still just like time well spent for yourself. Like you need that yeah. outlet. And in terms of priorities, I think I'll translate work-life balance, my interpretation to your work-life priority. Work-life balance to me then leads to the ability to prioritize whatever is appropriate at the time. And that can be flexible. Right. So I think like we are fortunate to be in positions where we have a lot of flexibility. Just today, my sister texted my wife and I and asked if we could bring her something that she had left at her house to school. And we have the flexibility to be able to do that. And we have the ability to use the flexibility to then prioritize helping out with family. That's a small Mm -hmm. example, but anyway, so I think, yeah, we're both lucky to have the ability to prioritize and I like converting that into a decision that you make of what to prioritize Mm -hmm. and when to make sure, I assume, most of the time family comes first. Yes. Yeah, 100%. And, you know, I think for both of us, it also comes from having jobs and employers that support that, which makes a huge difference. Absolutely. Speaking of work-life balance, you've been spending your nights and weekends working on some sort of DevOps and CICD thing that I don't actually know about. So I'm excited to get into what you've been working on. But in those nights and weekends and late night out, I'm exaggerating. I don't really know when you've been doing this, but it's okay. (laughs) in that workflow. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about what you've been working on? Yeah. So I thought first I would just start by explaining what DevOps is because it's an abbreviation for Dev Operations. And we talked a lot in the last episode with developer advocacy that working as a developer doesn't necessarily mean coding all day. And so I feel like this fits into that description. And I wouldn't consider myself an expert in DevOps by any stretch of the imagination. Like you can go the extreme and manage actual servers and do Amazon web services, AWS, you can get certified in those things. 
And I know like in the finance industry, that's a really big deal to make sure that all of that data is secure and that you have it on lockdown and people that do dev operations and networking and things like that get paid a lot of money to make sure that all that stuff is up and running and secure. Can I give you a little bit, it's not a rant, maybe it's a tiny bit of a rant, but my like modern definition of DevOps? Yes, please. It actually translates into something else, but the idea of DevOps, I think, has become more and more setting up infrastructure for developers so that they don't have to do it themselves. Mm -hmm. So you have all these tools out there that do a bunch of different things for you. Now you can pick and choose which ones you need, and it's easier to set up and get a fully deployed application. We'll talk more about these details. And so in my mind, a software developer and a DevOps engineer are becoming closer and closer and more and more synonymous with each other. And this is something I had in my slides in one of my recent talks that I gave. Developer experience is the merging of DevOps and developer. So as those things become closer and closer, that to me is where developer experience comes from. Because now you're enabling the developer themselves to be able to create more, to be able to build more, to build faster, to build more securely, all those things. Yes. I don't know if it's a rant if I agree with you. <laughs> uh, we can agree on rants. Uh, yeah, like I said, it's not really ranty, but I've never heard someone specifically say developer experience is the merging of DevOps and software mm. engineering. Yeah, I would wholeheartedly agree, especially as the tools have gotten a lot easier. We'll talk about Vercel a little bit later, but take them, for example. They're a fantastic sponsor of the podcast. And when you get ready to deploy a site on their servers, you just say where the repo is on GitHub, and then they're able to do a lot of work behind the scenes to know what kind of project it is. And it just works. Like It's amazing to me how seamless that whole process is, and that makes for a better developer experience. Mm -hmm. And that setup piece is super simple. Yeah, the tools get better every single day and there's more and more tools. So this is like one of the downsides, right? Like especially in the web development JavaScript ecosystem, there's more and more tools every day which maybe is overwhelming, but it also means there's just more and more amazing tools that take care of stuff for you so that you can just build the cool stuff that you want. I've said this a lot too, like there's just never been a better time in my opinion to be a developer and to want especially from an entrepreneurial perspective. Mm -hmm. If you want to build something, you want to make a product, there's a million tools out there to help you do that much faster and easier than it would have been 10 years ago, even five years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. So I want to compare and contrast that because we've been saying the tools are better. What were the tools <laughs> that we were dealing with before then? And so a lot of times you were having to run scripts to install things on a server yourself. You were having to do file management, folder management. You're having to move files around. And a lot of times the tech people were the ones that would say, well, I've got to deploy tonight, so I've got to stay up till two o'clock in the morning so that it happens at a time when it's going to influence the least amount of people. I mean, I'm sure everybody's seen those service messages that'll pop up on a website, like, sorry for the inconvenience, we're going to be down at from two to three a.m. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. who uses your service at two to three a.m.? <laughs> Good to know. But that's where we're coming from. And that gets really difficult for international companies, right? So 2 mm -hmm. to 3 a.m. is only one time zone. So if you're an international yep. company that has people all across the world, you don't necessarily even have that luxury. It's also interesting that you mentioned the 2 to 3 a.m. When I was at FedEx, the applications that we supported ran at night for sort. So actually, we had basically all day mm -hmm. to do pushes if we wanted to. The downside of that means if something went wrong, we were on call at night when it was actually running sort. So it's a little bit of a reverse 
situation there. But you nail, I mean, there's so many things that we used to do that we just don't do anymore. I know you did a lot mm-hmm. of WordPress development. I did some and you were like working on files on your local machine. You were FTPing those over mm-hmm. either with a command or like an FTP client or something like that. I've been in lots of situations at FedEx where we were taking an application, running a build of it on our machine, and then manually SCPing, copying, doing copy commands over to a server. We were manually then stopping the existing application, deleting the existing jar file, I think is what it was in Java, replacing it with a new one, and then starting it all up again. Every piece of that process was manual, and that's before getting into automated testing or just testing in general. Like that was just pre any sort of automation around that at all. Yeah. So in the example that you gave when I was doing WordPress sites, if you went to the site that I was working on while I was posting those files, that page would appear broken. Mm-hmm. And so that's kind of, I mean, that's why people were doing it at midnight or odd hours, but you compare that with what we have now. So we have much better tools. A lot of times you'll hear a CI CD pipeline and what that stands for is continuous integration and continuous deployment. So what that might look like practically, and this is actually what Vercel does is they will post all of your files to the server. And then once everything has updated, it will change which directory it's pointing to. So it's an instant change. You don't have to wait for those files to transfer over. It's just pointing from one directory to the next. And that way it's an instant change. And you can push changes all day and they'll just continuously be updated. And people shouldn't see any interruption in the service that they're getting. I forget which aspect of this refers to, but atomic deploys, I think, are part of that where you have basically a definable or a tangible deployment and then you have a new one and those are kind of individual separate from each other and you can kind of go back to previous ones if you want to and be right at the previous state that you were. It's never been easier to set up in something like Vercel to say, hey, I want to connect to this repository, run this command. It will then grab all the code when I push to my GitHub repository bring it all over, run the build, and then do that kind of just swap over to like, here's the new website, zero downtime. It's really, really neat. Let me take a brief moment and talk about one of our sponsors. Vercel will meet all of your hosting needs and we're actually hosting the compressed.fm site and my personal site, selfteach.me on Vercel. They also power more well-known sites like Twilio, but you can use them for e-commerce, travel, news, and marketing sites. You name it, they can host it. When I got ready to launch the compressed site, it was super easy. I pointed it to the GitHub repository and told it what folder my next.js project was in, and then it just worked. Ridiculous, right? But they also power over 30-plus Jamstack frameworks, including Create React App, Next, Nuxt, Vue, Ember, Svelte, Angular, Hugo, and Gatsby, just to name a few. But one of my favorite features is when you set up your account, you get your own dashboard, And here you can invite other team members to collaborate or view analytics. So as soon as I push the code to my GitHub repository, it deploys that code and I can watch the build and its entire process through their custom dashboard. So be sure to check out Vercel. I'll include a link in the show notes, but special thanks to Vercel for being a compressed.fm sponsor. Yep. So we did some fancy stuff on a new project at work. So I wanted to talk specifically about that. So we had... David Price on the podcast several weeks ago, and I just really fell in love with Redwood after he came on. And so we are actually building a product in Redwood. So the way that Redwood works is you have a web folder. It's a monorepo. You have a web folder and you have an API folder. So the web folder is your front end. 
The API folder is your backend. And then you also have a database. So in our case, we're using Postgres, but you could use MySQL, you could use Mongo, any of those things. But you have those three different components that you're working with. So keeping that in mind, I'm going to say that the first piece of a good pipeline is having a readme. And I know that sounds funny when we're talking about automations and things like that, but it is the best and easiest way to onboard a new developer. If you have the steps written down correctly, they should be able to do everything that they need to do just by following the readme. And that makes all the difference in terms of developer experience of getting up and running quickly and easily. So the readme has all of the information that you need to start that project. And actually, I wanted to mention Catherine Peterson, give her a shout out. I know James has interviewed her with the Learning Quick live stream, but she created a project called readme.so where it will help you build that readme file to include all of the information that you need. So you should go check out that project. We'll include a link in the show notes. Catherine's super awesome. You should definitely go check it out. And that led to the success of that project was a big factor in her getting a job with GitHub, which is pretty incredible. Mm-hmm. So back to the idea of like being an entrepreneur or being a content creator and kind of sharing the things that you work on. You never know what that might lead to in terms of job opportunities. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. So when you're setting up a project, usually you want to have a local environment and that's the environment that's running on your machine. And then you'd have a testing environment so you can go onto an actual server and test things. But only people internally would see that testing environment. Then you have a production environment, and that's the thing that's available to everybody that's out in the wild that your users are interacting with. And you may have any number of these, and you can call them anything you want. Another one that you'll hear about is a staging environment Mm -hmm. where you feel like things are in a pretty good spot, and you basically want to give a select number of people, most likely internally, the ability to test it out and make sure things look right before actually making the final push to production. You'll hear lots of combinations of environments with different names. And a lot of that really just comes down to the workflow and the opinions of the team that you're working on. So if you hear something a little bit different, don't think this is like a one fits all definition. It can vary by team and preference. Yeah. One of our clients, their testing or staging environment, the server is called confidence because it gives you confidence that you can push it live. I like it. Yeah. So on this particular project, we set up Docker and Docker is just gives you containers where you can develop locally. So the idea with Docker is that because it's contained, it's like a little sandbox that can't touch anything else. You want that to mimic your server. So all of the settings that are in Docker also match the server. That way, when you go to push those files live, it's not like, oh, the operating system, there's a file mismatch or you're using a different version of node here versus here. And then you end up having bugs in production that you didn't have in your local environment. So Docker just helps keep everything consistent. Docker is meant to solve one of the most commonly repeated sentences in developer history. Do you know what it is? I have no idea. (laughs) It worked on my machine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If you're a developer, you've probably been in that situation. So if it works on your machine within the Docker container, in theory, it's going to work on wherever else you can run that Docker container because it's consistent, just like you said. Yeah. Now, I do not have any experience setting up Docker containers. We had another dev on our team do all of that, but I was going to their website prepping for the show, and it looks like there's different images that are pre-made that you can use on your machine. And I'm sure, I say I'm sure, I would assume that a lot of hosting environments, they would even provide Docker containers to match what they have set up so that you can ensure that your system matches theirs. 
Yeah, there's a lot of, again, going back to like the plethora of tools and frameworks and platforms and stuff that are out there. There's kind of a big kick for open source alternatives to certain things that you can run on your own. And one that I am learning more about is called AppRite, which is another open source alternative to Firebase that you can then host on your own. And they give you the Docker containers with everything there. And then you just go and deploy and, and run that on your own. Yeah. The nice thing about the Docker container that we have set up is you run one command and it automatically sets up your databases for you, which is really nice that you don't have to do all that. We're using, like I said, Postgres, but it'll give you those connection strings and everything that you need Mm. without you having to go set that yourself. So you're using a Postgres instance that is inside of your Docker container. Is that right? Not like a third-party hosted Postgres? Uh, Well, when we actually have it go live, it's third party like it's hosted somewhere else Mm -hmm. but on docker it is a postgres instance it is a postgres container for testing yeah and exactly uh, for the local environment yeah okay where is the postgres instance in production it's on render so i'll get into this later but i will say part of the reason this is spoiler alert part of the reason that we're (laughs) using render is because you can host the front end the back end and the database all in one place which is really nice it's Mm -hmm. all in one location. So another piece of the pipeline, and this might seem like the readme piece. I don't know if people would normally include this, but I'm just thinking in terms of a developer experience, developer workflow, is we've been doing all of our project management in GitHub, which I really like. So we've talked about stories before. When you're working through a project, you'll write a story or a ticket, and that explains a feature or a bug or a chore that you're having to create. But the idea is if you have that set up as an issue, then with GitHub projects, you can actually prioritize those issues. And you can also establish complexity, which is pointing. We've talked about that before. You can think about like t-shirt sizes. It's like, is this a task that has a little bit of effort or a lot of effort? You can do all that within GitHub projects. And then what you would do is you would create a branch that the way that we have it structured is the branch name matches the ticket number within GitHub. And then you work on that branch. When you're done, you push all that code up to GitHub. You create a pull request to say, hey, please pull my code into your repository. And that piece right there is really important because GitHub integrates with all these other things to make stuff happen. And it's that pull request that kicks off a lot of these other actions, which is why I bring up that particular workflow. When you say actions, do you specifically mean stuff running in GitHub Actions or do you just mean... Mm-hmm. Both. Yeah. So there's several different pieces. So one of the things that we've talked about before, do we, have we done a whole episode on testing? can't remember. I honestly can't remember if we have good, or not. If anybody good one. remembers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so we've talked, you know, in different episodes about testing. And I know we've mentioned the testing trophy. And this is a concept that can't see Dodd's guess he's created. I really like the stuff that he has to say about testing, especially in JavaScript. And actually he's going to be on the podcast. So the way that his trophy is set up is it's almost like this hierarchy of testing. You can kind of think of it like a pyramid, but the reason that he doesn't have it set up as a pyramid is it's actually that middle part, the integration tests that probably should and need to have the most emphasis. But if you start at the bottom, you want to have static testing. And these are things like linting, like ESLint and Prettier, or in TypeScript. And what this does is it'll catch typos and different type errors as you're writing the code. 
So you're not really writing tests, but it does a lot of bug catching for you as you're writing your code, which is really nice. And then the next level of testing is you have unit testing. That's where you want to test an individual piece of code. So if you have heard of Jest before, usually you'll run unit tests with Jest. Integration tests are where you start to make sure that your components are integrated well and working together. And then end-to-end testing, we're actually using Cypress. Cypress is a really great suite for doing that end-to-end testing, but that tests a product like a user would. It looks at the entire page and says, as I click on one thing to the next, is the app behaving the way that I want? So I bring all this up because I mentioned creating a pull request will kick off all of these actions. We have a lot of these actions integrated into our setup. So we have linting set up. So that's nice because it means that as multiple developers are working on the project, we're all using the same code style. You're not fighting two spaces versus tabs or four spaces versus two spaces or single quotes versus double quotes or does a line have a semicolon at the end or not. So linting and pretty are going to take care of all that for you. We're also using TypeScript. So that helps with the typing and really creating documentation as you write. And then we're also using Husky. And I bring this up because the first time that I'd ever even heard of Husky was a few weeks ago when James was talking about creating a Discord bot. But what Husky does is it runs pre-commit hooks. So I have a love-hate relationship with Husky because <laughs> it will do all of these checks for me before I can even commit my code. So it won't even let me throw up a work in progress commit. I mean, I guess you could, but it has to be working. So the nice part is it keeps your commits clean. It keeps your code clean because you can't even commit it if it doesn't even work. So what happens is with that PR, it'll run a GitHub action that will run the unit test that we're using in Jest. And it will also run a GitHub action to run end-to-end testing with Cypress. So all of that happens under the hood. And the nice thing about GitHub and the way that it's built is it actually has a bot on the pull request page to show you once those checks have been done, if they were successful or not. And if they're not, there's a link there where you can go look at the build process to see exactly what failed and what that error message is. So if you're not using GitHub Actions, there are other services that will actually do similar things. For example, like Circle CI, and you can set that up to also run Jest or Cypress or kick off any of these other build processes. What was the learning curve like for you with GitHub Actions? This is something that I actually want to spend some dedicated time with as I get from a work perspective and also just from a deeper experience perspective of getting more into DevOps type thing with GitHub Actions being the one that's top of mind for me. What was yeah. the learning curve for that like? Yeah, so I didn't set up the GitHub Actions on this particular project since it was a work project, but I did set up GitHub Actions on the Compressed site. So what's happening with Compressed mm. is, I love it when I tell you these things are running on Compressed. And I'm like, you're like no oh, idea. really? That's nice. <laughs> that sounds so, really fancy. <laughs> <laughs> so GitHub Actions will allow you to do a whole suite of things. Like you can just write these scripts to spin up a server and have it do these things and then it'll spin the server down. So on Compressed FM, what we're doing is we're going to Simplecast, which is where we have the podcast hosted and it's checking to see what the analytics are. And then it will grab the analytics and post it to Sanity. And so I have it updating that daily. What GitHub Actions does is it's basically running a cron job. It says, go to this URL that will trigger all of these different things. So I did set up that particular GitHub action, and it was not as hard as you might think it was. There's a lot of GitHub actions where people share their recipes or their formulas that you can 
duplicate. You can clone them. You can modify them. So I think I was able to find a GitHub action that kind of did what I wanted. But Scott Talinsky has a course on level up tutorials that actually our friend Brian Douglas. So Brian Douglas was on the podcast a couple months ago, but Brian created this course specifically on GitHub actions and how to get things up and running. But it's kind of interesting if you're familiar with like a Toml file, it's kind of like that. You just almost create a bulleted list of all the things that you want it to do. And you can also say in the list the feedback that you want to spit out in the console as it's running. And that helps with errors and troubleshooting. You can see how far in the process that it got. The thing about GitHub Actions is like with Compressed FM, we're not paying anything for it. We're, I believe, under our minutes. But you get so many build minutes a month, and that's how they make money. Once you exceed those build minutes, then they'll start charging you for different things. So if you're working for a company that's doing a lot, you might end up paying something. But for our tiny little project, it still fits into their free plan. That's one of the really cool things about all the tools and platforms that are out there, too, is Mm -hmm. most of them have really good free tiers. So it's really Mm -hmm. easy to incorporate into your project and use for a long time until you actually like have some sort of scale in your application Mm -hmm. at that point, that's a good thing. And it's probably worth investing in the tools, but so many of them have such a good free tier to get started with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One more thing that I will say about GitHub actions when you're writing those things is it's almost like you're writing the command that you want to run in the terminal. So if you're familiar with writing commands in the terminal, you're just making a list of all the commands that you want it to run once it gets the server up and going and you can predefine the things that you want to be running on the server. One of the things I'm curious about, I don't actually know how this works, although I think it can work, is inside of GitHub action to trigger a JavaScript file. And the JavaScript file has an abstraction layer on top of writing bash commands. So you can actually like kind of run bash commands within a JavaScript file, but also have the comfort level and ability mm-hmm. to do other things inside of JavaScript. That's one of the things I'm kind yeah. of interested to look into. Interesting. Is that just like running a node script? Yeah, in theory, yeah. Mm-hmm. And then there's, I haven't looked in a while, but there's packages that give you APIs to work with mm-hmm. some of those things that you're used to in regular Bash. Yeah. Like I said, there's a lot of recipes that are created, so that would probably be the easiest place to start is just to see if somebody's already created a, mm-hmm. a recipe for you. And just to take this a step further, what this looks like in your repo is you actually create a folder it's like a dot in the front. I think it's like dot GitHub or something like that. And then inside that you have a workflows folder and you have a file inside and that has all of the information, that recipe that I'm talking about to run that GitHub action. Okay, so I alluded to this part at the top of the show, but I am hosting everything on render. And the reason that we went with render is because you're actually paying for the usage, not by the seat. So a lot of other hosting companies, they want to charge you for every single user that you have on their server, which is fine unless you have like a team of 20 that's like randomly coming in and out of the project. And so you could rack up a bill quite a bit just for somebody that's popping in and out of the project, but you want them to be able to have access to it. So with Render, it was nice that they're only paying for the server uptime and what you're actually using server space for. And it also, I mentioned this, you can host the front end, the back end, and the database. And so it's nice that all of that is in one single location. Is this an application that will be used more primarily by people in the United States geographically, or would it be people all over the world? Do you have any idea? Yeah, our app right now is geared towards the United States. And 
honestly, I don't know all the different server locations for Render. I know that their server that we're on is in Oregon, which the company that I'm at is in Southern Oregon. So that makes it nice, but I don't know about the other locations that it has. That's one of the things that I'm learning more about. I guess I can say this because this will have been released by the time this podcast episode comes out, but we've got a new feature in Planet Scale for multi-region replicas where you oh, have nice. like your database is in Eastern US, for example, but let's say you have a lot of users in Japan where you can deploy a read replica of your database somewhere in whatever data center we have closest to Japan. And then the people in Japan would read from that database instead of making requests all the way back to Eastern United States. So that idea of like literally the speed of light is mm. the factor in all this Crazy. stuff when you make requests from across the world. Yeah. So the more you can make those requests to locations that are geographically closer, the more performant your application will be. Yeah. That stuff's crazy. When Nader was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, he was talking about just the distribution of data and how that has an effect on web three. And that's just all very mm-hmm. fascinating to me, mostly because I don't understand how all <laughs> that stuff works. We've got lots to learn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Always, always <laughs> lots to learn. So with Render, the nice thing about it, I mentioned we're using Redwood, is they actually have a blueprint. They have support for Redwood right out of the box. So Render has this concept of blueprints that will spin up the server with the specifications that you need. And so Redwood has a specific blueprint that says, this is what I need in order to run the application. So you use their install script that comes with Redwood out of the box, and that will give you the information that you need in order to connect to Render and get everything set up. But I think the piece that I was the most excited about with Render is it has a concept called Render Previews. And actually, Vercel and Netlify both have similar concepts where if you create a pull request, they'll create another instance of your site with a unique URL related to that pull request so that you can preview what that particular branch looks like online, which is great if you are trying to do QA or testing and you don't have to pull that branch down to your computer and view it locally, you can see everything online, which also makes it nice that you can send URLs for other people to preview and that kind of thing. But I bring this up specifically with Render because if you'll remember, I said that there is a web front end, an API back end, and a database. And so when you're doing a lot of the testing, you want to make sure that you have a unique database instance. I actually want to talk to you about this from a <laughs> planet scale perspective. But if I'm working on a feature and I create some extra columns and fields and rows and all this stuff on my database, but somebody else hasn't gotten to that feature yet, you don't want their code to break because my instance of the database looks different. And so by having this render preview and having a unique instance of the database, you can see what that code looks like specific to that database without breaking your development or your production. I know I bring this up specifically about PlanetScale because I know they have a really cool feature called branching, which I had never heard of the idea of branching on an actual database until you had mentioned it on the podcast. Yeah, I think that's easily the thing that we're most known for. And it's just such a recognizable thing for developers because that's something that we're used to from a Git and GitHub perspective is the idea of branching. But it's exactly that. We could talk more behind the scenes. It's actually something I want to get more into from a perspective of automation and CI, CD, and DevOps. But you do kind of the way you were just talking about having brand new databases or clean databases for your deployment previews. You could use branches to do the exact same thing. So you're working with a branch 
you can run like a if you're using prisma like a prisma push command to push that schema up you can run a seed script to populate it with certain data part of the usefulness of a seed script is to wipe out the database and then start Mm -hmm. fresh so even if you are reusing a database you're making sure that you have exactly the data that you want inside of there well the seed database is also useful when you're testing because you want to make sure that Mm -hmm. you have the information that you're expecting to be on the database when you're doing those tests. But it seems like the branching concept might be cleaner because then you wouldn't have to spin up an entire new instance of your database, especially if you had a lot of data. Every time you wanted to test something, you could just branch off what you already have without affecting somebody else's code. Yeah. And the branches in PlanetScale are actual separate databases. So they are, it's similar. Okay. And the fact that they are new instances of databases. When you do a branch, you get a copy of the schema. Right now, mm-hmm. you don't get a copy of the actual data that's in there. So you would have to run like a seed script, but you're also not having to copy over all the data at the same time. Got it. And now it's time to take a second to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Dato CMS. Dato CMS is a complete and performant headless CMS built to offer the best developer experience and user friendliness in the market. One of the things I think is really interesting and neat on their website is if you hover on their wide Dato CMS tab in the nav bar, you see sections for developers, digital markers, and content creators. So it's got the entire audience covered. They also provide a rich CDN-powered GraphQL API with real-time updates, which is really neat. So all of you who love working with GraphQL and are looking for something that has real-time updates, this is really, really cool. They also provide a super flexible way to handle dynamic layouts and structured content and then have best in-class image and video support with progressive image loading out of the box. So if you're looking for a headless CMS that can help represent every member of your team, make sure to check out Dato CMS. And for your deploy previews, you said those are based on either branches or PR specifically PRs. with a branch. So based on PR. So mm-hmm. for each PR, you get a new instance of all of this stuff. You get right. a database, you get a front end, back end, all that stuff is running. When do those go away? How, are, is there a way for you to tell Render, all right, we finished what we're doing with this. You can mm-hmm. now get rid of those resources. Yes. Yeah, so Render will automatically shut down that preview once the pull request is closed. You can also set it up within their YAML file. So the YAML file is where they have all of their preferences. And if you're not familiar with YAML, it's just kind of a way of listing out information. It's kind of like a, almost looks like a text document, but it also has this JSON flavor to it. I found them to be quite readable. Anyways, within the YAML file, you can set to say, shut down a preview after five days of inactivity. So if a branch or a PR goes stale, you don't have to have that service that you're paying for that you're not. Yeah, exactly. Do you have any requirements around creating a PR? I'm just wondering, like any idea of the velocity of PRs that you would have on a project like that? Like, would you be getting multiple a day? Would you be getting a couple a week? And I'm just kind of thinking about that influencing then how many resources you'd be running inside of Render. Yeah. So with our project right now, we've kind of shifted how we're setting up our stories. So when we first set up this project, it was for our in-house hackathon a couple of weeks ago. And so in order not to have like tons and tons of stories that are really overwhelming to everybody, we had these giant stories. And it's not necessarily something that I would recommend for a project. For example, CRUD for users was an entire story. And if you were to point mm-hmm. that out, it would be an extra large or a 13-point story. It's a lot of work that goes into it. So in that case, you'd have a preview that has a ton of work included. 
Right now, we've tried to break those stories into very tiny bite-sized pieces so that people can step into the project, do something quickly, and actually complete a task and get that merged. And so right now, there's definitely more PRs that are going through the system than there were before because we have all these little tiny bite-sized stories. I will say from a cost perspective, though, I was really surprised by how cost-effective Render was. So on Friday, we had five open PRs plus our production deployment, and it gives you a invoice where it'll tell you this is what your projected invoice is going to be if you maintain these services to the end of the month. And so with those five open PRs and our production deployment, it was $25. Oh, wow. Yeah, that seems great. Yeah. And I guess at one point, like your number of PRs average out to number of PRs open and closed. So you'd have an average over any given time of five or so, which then gives you a general idea based on their pricing of how much that would be. And one of the things... I don't know if they have this as well. I would kind of imagine they would. So in branches for Planet Scale, you have the idea of a production branch and then you have other branches and the quote unquote other or non-production branches there. I don't remember the exact details, but they're lower resources that you're using, mm-hmm. understandably, um, mm-hmm. unless you're actually trying to do something like a real intense staging environment. But you probably don't need as performance of an environment for just the testing piece of it. So mm-hmm. those, I think those resources would be cheaper and it may be the same for some of the preview deployments that you have in Render. Yes. The other nice thing about Render was you could establish in that YAML file if you wanted to lock into a specific plan. And within the settings and preferences, you could set a spend limit. So I know that we're not going to spend, say, more than $100 mm-hmm. a month if somebody went crazy with PR <laughs> and things like that. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, every new line of code is the new PR. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that'd be miserable. If people are interested, I figured out the way to spam your company's bill is to just create <laughs> a bunch of PRs. But that's great. Like, that's exactly what those limits are for. Yeah. Because the individual deployments for each PR is great, but it's also not a necessity. Like, mm-hmm. it probably makes more sense to have a cost limit and say, all right, we're going to take advantage of this up to a certain point. Right. And then we can kind of tap out and still get the other benefits along the way. Yeah. Well, and that does bring up a good point. Would you necessarily want to do this if it was a public project? This is definitely a private repo where we're controlling the Mm -hmm. pull requests and things like that. Yep. And I I don't know exactly what this would look like. Maybe something in your GitHub action, but you could do some sort of gauge to see if you think it's worth having a deploy environment. If it's something that Mm -hmm. scaled, like you have that many people contributing PRs, obviously cost and resources is going to be a concern. So you could have, I don't know what it would be right offhand. Like maybe you have an approval process, like before you actually approve Mm -hmm. the PR, someone from the team goes in and says, all right, I want to see the deployment of this. Now click this button or trigger something in GitHub actions. And now that gets deployed to render and you can gauge and then go from there. I don't know what exactly it looks like, but you could certainly set up some sort of threshold. Yeah. Well, and just for clarity, the kickoff to render is an integration that render has with GitHub. All the mm-hmm. GitHub action stuff is just what's running the tests. Yeah, I wonder if there's a way to choose to tie that in I'm sure directly. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Either extra configuration on render side or the ability to connect to render from GitHub actions. I don't know. Yeah. The one caveat that I did want to explain for anybody that's trying to replicate this process is that right now, in order for Redwood to work on render, you have to set up the redirect URL for the web to go to the right place for the API folder. And so there's not a way right now within render to set up that redirect through code for the PR. 
So we are having to do that manually right now. They've said it's a feature they're working on, but hopefully that'll, I know it's weird. I'm not sure I followed that. So when you have a fully deployed preview, you've got mm-hmm. your three separate things. You've got your database front end and a back end. Mm-hmm. And when your front end talks to your back end, there's something it doesn't know how to talk to the back end. I'm not that's, sure I followed that. That's right. You have to set up a rewrite URL. So I can include again the link to the documentation for Renderer and Redwood, but it tells you, hey, you have to go in and establish this as the rewrite URL so that the front end knows exactly where the back end is. I'm not sure why they don't know that in code, but you do have to establish that. And then you actually add that path to your YAML file. So you don't have to do that every time for your production environment. But the weird thing is with your PRs, for whatever reason, you can't make that PR like a variable that it can automatically grab for that rewrite Mm -hmm. URL. So that's like the one piece that we haven't quite locked in. And part of that's because render doesn't allow you to set that dynamically. They've said it's a feature that's coming, but I'm not sure when that that will be. (laughs) Yeah. So that's every time you have one of those PR deployments, you have to go into render and set that property. Is that? That's right. Yeah. So that's the only want, want thing. But (laughs) anyway, so far this process has been really great and it's been the most seamless in terms of all the requirements that we have with hosting everything in one place and paying for usage and that kind of thing. Let me take a brief moment and talk about the company that I work for, Zeal. They actually sponsor our podcast. They design custom applications and develop primarily in Rails and React. They're a remote-first company even before the pandemic. They're based out of Southern Oregon, but I live outside of Nashville, and we have team members across the entire country. But Zeal holds a special place in my heart because, as I mentioned, I work there. But I can honestly say it's the best place that I've ever worked. And good news for you, they are hiring, so you could work with me. In particular, we are hiring engineers. So if that's you and you're looking for a change and want to work for an incredible company, go check out the careers page at codingzeal.com. I'll include a link in the description below. Special thanks to Zeal for being a Compressed FM sponsor. So I don't know if you know this, Heroku has been having issues with GitHub integrations and it's been problematic for like three weeks now. Yeah, and it's still happening. And so for the first time ever, I am now doing manual deploys to Heroku for the Discord bot because it can't connect. Mm-hmm. Yeah, whatever issue it's having, it can't connect to the yeah. GitHub repository. So I am running, still like pushing my code to GitHub, but now I'm also running an additional, I think it's a Heroku push command to mm-hmm. take what's on my local computer to Heroku directly. Yeah, so that's one of the reasons why we're not t- trying to do all this on Heroku mm-hmm. is because that stuff's broken. I do know talking about GitHub Actions, that there are some ways that you can get GitHub Actions to run those commands that you're talking about that you're having to run manually. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's just having the Heroku CLI installed and also having some sort of proof that you're the authenticated user. And I think the way that works is you create what's considered a machine-to-machine token. Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. it's basically the machine is whatever your GitHub Action is running in. So the actual server that Microsoft provides, it's not a user that's doing it necessarily. It's like a machine to machine thing. And so if you say that in your environment variables, and then I don't know how, but if you have the Heroku CLI installed and you can verify that, then you can run in theory that mm-hmm. exact same Heroku command. That's actually something that I am looking to get into. I mentioned getting deeper into DevOps and GitHub actions with planet scale and this idea of tying exactly what you're talking about to automatically create branches and automatically see databases and do testing and that sort of thing. 
So I'm, that's one of the things I'll be looking at in a couple of weeks, probably after mm-hmm. I'm back from a couple of trips coming up. Yeah. It is really nice when everything works. So mm-hmm. like I mentioned that with GitHub Actions, once those tests run, it'll display in GitHub in your PR, whether those tests pass or not. With Render, there's a bot that it'll post the actual preview URL for you. It's related to that PR. So it's nice having all of that in one single location. Mm-hmm. Yep. I had tried Render really briefly for just looking at different alternative hosts for the Discord bot. And I don't remember what issue I had, but I kind of backed off of it. So it sounds like this is definitely worth me giving another shot. Another one that I'm interested in that Remix integrates really well with is Mm -hmm. Mm fly.io. So I want to try that one as well. But again, this is the quote unquote problem, but really the upside of the world we live in is just having a plethora of tools and you can find the right one that has the exact features that you need and the one that just works best for whatever you're doing. Yes, I remember you talking about having trouble with render, but I think part of the reason why this was so easy for me was because there was a Redwood render integration and it provided Mm -hmm. that blueprint file for you. So if you didn't have that blueprint file and you're having to go in and do those settings yourself, it might be a little bit harder. A little tricky, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, I think Redwood's done a great job and Remix is similar Mm -hmm. of knowing who are the most likely hosts for them to work with and supporting them with a command or something to generate Mm -hmm. whatever configuration files are needed to have it just up and going and make that as easy as possible for us, the developers to Mm -hmm. have it deployed. Well, and it goes back to what you're saying at the top of the show is that developer experience. You Mm -hmm. have to have that. It makes a big difference when you're selecting platforms and things like that. Yep. All right. Well, that was super interesting. I'm glad you happened to have that as a project that you're working on to talk about recently. And that's a lot of where inspiration for this stuff comes from. It's just stuff that we stumble across or hear about or get to work on, on fun projects. And usually at this point in the show, we do our grab bag question section where we take questions from friends and strangers alike. I actually forgot to post on Twitter and in Discord to see if we had any questions. So we'll skip that section today. But if you out there, the listener, have any questions for us about this process, probably most likely for Amy, feel free to reach out to us on Twitter using the Compressed FM handle and or one of our handles individually, me at James Q. Quick and Amy at Self Teach Me. So the next segment of the show then is our picks and plugs. And this is where we pick something that we like and plug something generally that we've worked on. So James, do you have any picks and plugs for us this week? Yeah, I'm I'm going with the old man theme today. Um, I'm putting in chiropractor. The last couple of weeks have been, I think part of it's just like a lot of sports and traveling and sitting on planes and trains and stuff. And my back, the last couple of weeks has been like as bad as it had been, I think, in a couple of years. And so I'd been going to, it's almost like a fast food chiropractor called The Joint. They're really good for what they are, but you don't have an appointment, you go in And even if you wait for a few people, like you're probably in and out in 15 minutes. And if you don't wait for anybody, it's literally five minutes at that. Back in January, I kind of decided I wanted to to go to a chiropractor where I got a little bit more attention and a little bit more treatment that's specific to me. And I realized on our health insurance that we get 20 visits for $10 a piece uh, before we have to pay a full copay. So I figured I would take advantage of that. So anyway, I found a chiropractor that is nearby, like two miles away. And went and they took x-rays, which is something that the joint didn't do. And we had like a 30-minute session where she walked me through all the x-rays and showed me all the lines that were supposed to be horizontal and they were angled and how they didn't line up with the bones and just how like out of whack so many parts of my body were. And then I ended up convincing Jess to go too. And Jess is super competitive. So when she was getting 
treated one day, she asked, who's worse, James or I? And <laughs> she told her that I was much worse, which means there's that much more room to improve from my perspective. So um, it was nice to just have like x-rays and an explanation and then kind of a treatment plan and also having stem where they attach like the leads to you and send the electromagnetic pulses or whatever, whatever they are through your body for me and my lower back. So that's been really good. And I think the theme here for me or the recommendation is just like, it's never too early to start thinking about your body and at least getting a feeling of where you are and what you can do to improve. And I've been feeling better since I've been going and it's only been like a week. So I'm, I'm excited to see where I end up in terms of doing a comparison set of x-rays to see how much my body has changed in a couple of months or however long that is. So that's been a good thing for me. Yeah, that's nice that it can be that objective. It's not just the subjective, oh, I think I feel better, Mm -hmm. but that they're actually able to compare x-rays. Yep, exactly. And that was one of the things that I didn't know. Like I said, I enjoyed going to the joint. I didn't have any bad, bad back problems in the last year when I was going, but I don't know if that's just because it didn't happen or because if they were really changing things. So like you said, having the comparison set of x-rays whenever we do those will be a good kind of learning thing for me. So yeah, take care of your body, invest in it. And for plug, I actually wrote an article the other day after we recorded our episode on developer advocacy. And I should, I wish I would have aligned these better, but I wrote an article on the top five struggles that I have as a developer advocate. And first and foremost, I love my job. I love what I do. I wouldn't choose any other role at this point in my career, but no job is perfect. And I think developer advocates sometimes get put on a pedestal and it just looks like it's glamorous and you're flying around and speaking at conferences and stuff. But there's also some troubles that come along with that too, or struggles, just like any other job position. So I wrote an article on my top five struggles on my blog at jameshuquick.com. First blog I've written in a while. I want to do, I always say this, I want to do more and I never do, but I want to. Mm -hmm. So maybe you'll see more of that kind of stuff in the future, but you can check it out at jameshuquick.com. I am right there with you. So I... Talk me out of it. I've been entertaining swapping my oh, no. blog over to Svelte Kit so that I can mm. run everything through Markdown files. So I have been writing. What are you on? I'm on Sanity, which I really like Sanity. And from a web interface is really nice that I can quickly update things. But a lot of times, like recently, I've been writing more, which is exciting. But I write in Notion. And Notion will let you export a particular page into Markdown. So it'd just be so nice to write it in Notion, export it out, and then drop that folder into my Mm -hmm. website and then basically be done with it. I wouldn't have to reformat anything with Sanity or anything like that. Yeah, I'll be honest. I've been thinking about not necessarily moving a Svelte kit for that, but there's things that I kind of wish were different. In the Sanity editor, I would much rather write Markdown, but it's not really... They don't have any like really good assistance for writing Markdown. So in their mm-hmm. editor, it's like Google Docs, where if you want a header, you have to go up and hit the dropdown for H2 or whatever, which is like such a, a ridiculously, seemingly small, but tedious task versus just like typing the things that you know how to type in Markdown. And I've gone back and forth on that. I don't know what I want to do exactly, but I, I would entertain the idea of either moving back to embedded Markdown in my project or moving to a different headless CMS that has like first class support for markdown embedded inside of it. So that's yeah, it's I don't write enough right now to really push to make the change, but I would definitely consider it if I had the time. <laughs> One of the things that I like about Sanity and I you always correct me, it's either portable text or portable content. 
but you can create these custom components and control how they're styled. So the designer in me loves that, oh, I could just drop any component that I want or I have complete control over the styling. And looking at the Svelte kit side of things, you can run MD specs, which is like MDX if you're used to React, but you can create these React components and import them directly into your Markdown files. And that is the best experience that I've found is doing that with SvelteKit and MD Specs versus like say even a Gatsby with MDX running. Oh, another thing you may think about is you could use Notion directly if you wanted to. Notion mm-hmm. has an API. So instead of even exporting to Markdown, you could just pull in directly from Notion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the other thing that I've been entertaining is if I have a shortage of projects. Right now, the comments on my site, I'm running through a service called commento.io and it will handle comments for a serverless setup. It's $5 a month. But Supabase integrates so nicely with SvelteKit that it would just be so easy to almost roll my own solution, but run it all through Supabase. So again, more projects, (laughs) less time. Anytime Amy says, roll my own solution. My uh, problematic. My alarm bells go off. <laughs> yeah. Did you do your pick and plug? By the way, no, did we just start on? I'm talking, it was a completely separate conversation. Cool. I'm plugging. <laughs> yeah. So I'm just gonna. I see what I'm gonna turn this into a generic plug. I'm gonna plug Hashnode. It's our sponsor for our interviews episode. But go check out Hashnode because they do a fantastic job. James is laughing about me rolling my own solution. It's a great way to get up and running. And so part of the reason I said I hesitate. And moving everything over is that a lot of times I feel like I'm going to work on my site and use that as an excuse not to write. And the thing that I love about solutions like Hashnode is you can actually just write and not have to worry about all that back-end piece and using that as an excuse not to write and not to contribute. So go check out Hashnode. So I'm doing my picks and plugs backwards. My pick <laughs> for the week is a book called Green Lights. I've been listening to it. It's Matthew McConaughey's book. And it's built on the concept of like a traffic light, the green lights that he's gotten in his life that have given him permission to keep going and to move on. And it's fantastic. So the audio book, he actually narrates and you can tell like I'm listening to an actor because, and it's his book. So just his voice inflection, how he tells his stories, it's done in the way that he intended. It's been incredibly entertaining. And just some of the things that he's done in his life, I just like, I had no idea. So go check it out. Green lights. Love it. All right. So we hope you enjoy that. If you enjoyed today's episode, make sure to give a rating and review to help other people find the podcast. In the meantime, that's all we got.